If you would take your Bibles and open to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Our text for these four Sundays of Advent is Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. As I said last week, these four Advent Sundays, we'll be looking at these four royal titles as they are mentioned here in verse number six. Last Sunday, we examined the first one, that is Wonderful Counselor. For the context, we saw that Assyria was the superpower at that time, the world power at that time. They had taken Israel and they were sort of in the mood to take the rest of the Jewish people, that is Judah. But a series of promises are made by God to Judah that they would be spared. The end result would be that there would be deliverance. It is in this context that we find verse number six, and this is part of the promise that is made. The first title is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful and Counselor going together. Some have um, translated as Counselor of Wonders. Counselor refers to the exercise of governance, the capacity to administer and execute policy. Wonderful is the modifier. It modifies counselor. And it suggests that this king that is mentioned will have extraordinary wisdom with foresighting about the planning. Those who originally heard this from Isaiah may have thought that he was talking about King Hezekiah, who was the king at that time. And indeed, if you look at the history uh, Hezekiah was an amazing king, um, not only as recorded in scripture, but uh, from archaeology. He is the one who um, had dug through the mountains uh, a, a trough of sorts that was able to bring water uh, directly into the city of Jerusalem. But as we go through the rest of the verse, we come to see that, in fact, Isaiah is speaking of the coming Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And we saw how that he answered or he fit this promise of a wonderful counselor, that he was wise, that he was wonderful, which is seen in his teaching. Um, And as I mentioned, I want to come back to it a bit. I mentioned last Sunday that what we see in Jesus is something that is counterintuitive, both in his teaching and in his actions. He contradicted assumptions that most people have about the way things should be. And he pointed to a way of governing that did not involve violence or exploitation. We hear him say to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, But with God, all things are possible. And this juxtaposition of possible and impossible recalls um, the visit of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, um, pre-incarnate Jesus, in Genesis chapter 18. When he visited with two angels, he visited Abraham and told him that this time next year he would have a son. And Sarah laughed and it's like, "This, this is not possible. And the Lord says, is anything too wonderful? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
The answer is no. And so, as Jesus teaches, on the face of it, it sounds strange. It's not what we expect. But the reality is, his teaching is wonderful. It's contrary to what we think. This is not the way we think think things should be. But in Jesus, we hear a wonderful counselor. Jesus' actions also displayed what we might call incomprehensible wisdom and wonder. We read the Gospels and people are astonished at what he did. Are we not, all these centuries later, astonished and wondered at his doings? He performed actions of rescue and restoration. Think of the woman who had had an issue, a bleeding issue for 12 years, who touches the hem of his garment and is healed instantly. In the old days, in Jesus' days, in our day, people say that there are certain limits. There are certain things that are possible and other things that are simply not possible. And Jesus comes into the world and shows us that, in fact, we are quite mistaken. One of the things he does is he, in a sense, gets rid of the boundaries that others have put on us. And so we see that Jesus threatened to establish order. That's why they killed him. See, it's the people above us who tell us what we can and cannot do. And Jesus comes along and says, that thing that people say you can't, yes. The thing that people say is impossible. No, with God all things are possible. Mary anticipates this in the song that we find in Luke 1. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away hungry. It's no wonder that the leaders, the authorities, wanted to kill him. They understood that what he was teaching and what he was doing challenged their authority. And they didn't want to lose that. And then lastly, we saw last week that Jesus has invited his followers to continue his mission. He is the wonderful counselor. He has challenged the world's vision of itself. He has given that vision to us and has challenged us to go out and spread the good news, the gospel. And again, I I mentioned this last week, it's not simply a matter of being contrary. I was raised in a tradition in which whatever the world was doing, we weren't going to do that. And I probably told you the story, but once in a youth camp, um, they had a question and answer time one evening, I think, and uh, somebody asked, is it okay for a Christian to have sideburns? A profound theological issue. Um, And one of the pastors said, no, you cannot have sideburns because Tom Jones has sideburns. Another pastor said, well, that's ridiculous. He wears pants, too. I mean, at what point do you say we're not going to be like the world? We're going to be contrary. That is not the wonderful counselor. Like, whatever the world says, we will do the opposite. Rather, it is seeing beyond and seeing what is, in fact, true. The Christians in Thessalonica were brought before the authorities because they were accused of having turned the world upside down. Not literally, But in the way they viewed things, it was quite different than what most people were used to. 
Today we come to the second title, Mighty God. And at this point we begin to have a sense that Isaiah is not talking about King Hezekiah. He's not talking about an ordinary king. Instead he's speaking of the mighty God. By the way, this is not the first time we hear this, or it's not the only time that we hear this in the book of Isaiah. In chapter 10, the next chapter, a remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. In this title we hear two things. Mighty, which speaks of military might or heroic action, and God, which speaks of deity or divinity. For those of you who know such things, generally in the Old Testament, the word for God is in the plural, Elohim, which gives us, a, it implies that in fact God is Trinity, even though people don't have a sense of it then. Jesus reveals that to us. But here the word is not Elohim, it is El. It is singular. It's speaking of a person, one person. That is the Messiah, the divine person. But this divine person is also a military figure, a military hero. And this is something that I think, frankly, we are not comfortable with. God as a warrior, we're not so sure. More than that, he is a mighty warrior. Yet we hear this time and time again in the Old Testament, in the Song of Moses after Israel crossed the Red Sea. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. We hear it in Psalm 24 from David. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. The word mighty points to bravery and boldness and heroism. But if we can set our discomfort aside for a moment, we need to ask ourselves, does Jesus the Messiah in fact fulfill this title, this royal title? We know from the Gospels and beyond that Jesus is divine, that he is God. So I think we don't really have a problem with that. We heard Thomas after the resurrection, his confession, his exclamation, my Lord and my God. And this isn't the only time that we hear this, this proclamation, if you wish. The man in chapter 9 of John, who was born blind, worships Jesus as God. Through the epistles, we hear Trinitarian uh, theology. Again, I don't think this is an issue for most of us. The issue is mighty. This is something we're uncomfortable with. We need to understand that Jesus' power is in a world which many lay claim for such power. In his time, it was the Roman Empire. And we need to be clear about something. Jesus will not and did not compete with the power of Rome, or any other empire if you wish, on the terms of Rome. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. But he's not speaking of another world, some, some ethereal Existence on a different plane from what we have right now. Many people see it that way, and so it allows them, in a sense, to, to disengage, if you wish, from this reality and look forward to something else. To speak only in spiritual terms and not practical terms. Jesus is saying to Pilate, 
he is insisting that his power is not grounded in the same things that the authority of Rome is. That it isn't power that comes from the end of a weapon. That it is violent or coercive in its ways. What he is saying is that his kingdom and his claim to authority as the mighty God is rooted in the will of the Father whose intention for the world is quite different than what most human empires imagine. And during the time of Jesus, the Roman Empire. How is it then that Jesus fulfills this royal title, Mighty God? I think a better way to put this, or a better question to ask is, how did Jesus exercise power to enact change, restoration, and new life? What we begin to find and I say begin because I suspect that we are still looking and have failed to understand this correctly, is that Jesus exercised counterpower in the same way his teaching is counterintuitive. He refused to play the game by the rules that those in authority had set up. Those rules insisted on coercion, exploitation, and more. Instead, what we find in Jesus is someone as the mighty God who has authority and who has power to make life possible. Consider two events. We could look at many, but two events specifically that demonstrate that he is, in fact, the mighty God. They're both found in the Gospel of Mark, if you want to follow along. The first is in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse number 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit, an unclean spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet said Jesus sternly, come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked one another, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. If you think about their story, there are four parties involved. But only two main actors, if you wish, Jesus and the unclean spirit. The man himself, I mean, it's all about him, but he doesn't speak. He's sort of in the background there. And then the people in the synagogue who are watching all of this take place. The interaction is between Jesus and this unclean or this evil spirit. The unclean spirit recognizes Jesus for who he is and sees that he is, in fact, a threat to his existence that he is, if you wish, the mighty God. This unclean spirit had a function of possessing and debilitating this man, taking hold of him and weakening him as a person. And he sees Jesus as someone who could put an end to this. What does the spirit call Jesus? The Holy One of God doesn't match the mighty God that we see in Isaiah 9-6, but he does acknowledge the power of God. Have you come to destroy us, he asked. 
Jesus responds to the challenge by speaking two commands that demonstrate, that illustrate, that assert his authority. He says, be quiet, and secondly, come out of him. And the spirit came out of the man. The spirit did not want to come out of the man, but he was helpless in the face of the mighty God, the power of the Lord Jesus The crowd acknowledges Jesus' authority, his teaching, but also that he cast out the unclean spirit. Interestingly enough, they don't identify his power as divine. They only ask a question which implies an answer. What is this? Who is this person that these things have happened? It is the Lord of life who makes life possible for this man who had been possessed by the unclean spirit. Jesus has the power of life and he shows that he is more powerful than the enemy of life. The second incident or episode is found in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with them or with him. A furious call came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He says to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Several things to notice, and I don't know if you caught it as I was reading it, that in both stories, the command is the same. Quiet. To the demon, he says, be quiet. Jesus' work was to reduce the power of death as seen in this unclean spirit and as seen in this storm. And he reduces these to submission. Secondly, the key word in both episodes, by the way, is obey. The unclean spirit obeyed him and left the man. The wind and the waves obeyed him. These forces of chaos, an unclean spirit that possesses a man, the wind and the waves that are torn back and forth by the wind, This is chaos. They are, if you wish, agents of uncreation, agents of destruction. In the one case, it reduced a man to helplessness. He was possessed by this unclean spirit. In the case of the disciples, they are paralyzed by their fear. It's really quite remarkable because most of them were fishermen. They should have been used to a certain amount of bad weather on the sea. But they are paralyzed by their fear. In the series that we did on evil, I mentioned the definition of evil as given by N.T. Wright. It is the force of anti-creation. That is, it is against creation. Anti-life. The force which opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good work, world of space, time and matter. And above all, God's image-bearing human creatures. Jesus contains and subjects these threats by creating a new space for life. 
Now the man is no longer possessed by an unclean spirit. Now the disciples are no longer threatened by the storm that has suddenly arisen on the sea. The power for life comes from the Creator God. And this is what we see in Jesus as the mighty God. All other forms of power, I would argue, somehow are connected to death. Um, Certainly in the Roman Empire, um, the, the hundreds of thousands of people that they killed in order to achieve this empire was rather significant. But Jesus is the mighty God, and in fact, he speaks, and all powers are submissive or submitted to him. The power for life is in fact mighty. It really requires a great deal of power to resist the force of death. But in these two events, we see the same power for life in the ministry of Jesus. We see it in others as well. For example, the man who was paralyzed and his friends let him down through the ceiling, through the roof. And Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. And then he tells him, take up your bed, stand up, take up your bed and walk. He has authority that makes life possible. When he feeds the multitude in the wilderness, Jesus is taking authority over the wilderness. Wilderness is not a place where you expect to find food. And yet, in fact, Jesus feeds the thousands there. Read the Gospels and see Jesus as mighty God or divine hero. He is the one who forgives, who heals, who redeems, and who exercises authority. He is, I would argue, the mighty God that is foretold in our text. We will struggle, I think, initially with the whole idea of the military aspect. Because the language of the Old Testament is very militaristic. But we see that there is something greater than a warrior, and it is one who gives life. He is indeed the mighty God, the giver of life. So we got over that struggle. I think another one comes up, and that is, how does it apply to us? If we're not careful, we might be tempted to make this a spiritual matter, some ethereal, some abstract, some otherworldly thing, not connected to our day-to-day lives. Part of the reason for this view is that it gets us off the hook for following Jesus. The reality is that Jesus called his disciples, his followers, to participate in transformative acts. He spoke of forgiveness. He spoke of life. He calls us to participate in the work of creation that makes the abundant life possible. But if we're not careful, we're like those first 12 disciples in the boat. We have no faith. We rather respond to the threats, the fear that comes from chaos that surrounds us. I I think one of the most profound things we do when we gather to worship on Sunday morning is what happens at the beginning. When somebody sings and we respond, I will not fear. As I've said before, the second most repeated command in the Bible after love your neighbor, love the Lord your God, is do not be afraid, do not fear.
And we should not because Jesus is the mighty God. The rule of God is rooted in him and we have that life. Jesus told his disciples before he ascended to heaven, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The early church understood that they were entrusted with the power of God, the power of life. They were witnesses of Jesus, the mighty God. And they spoke of healing, of forgiveness, of restoration and well-being as seen in God. They were witnesses to the creator of life. In Jesus, they saw life. The night before his death, Jesus, the one we know as mighty God, said to his disciples, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And my question is, do we in fact believe that? Or we do, in, do we embrace the, the weapons of the world? Imagine that somehow we will accomplish God's purpose in our own way. In Psalm 72, it's one of two psalms written by Solomon. He speaks of the king and um, asks that God would in fact direct the king. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and you're poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. I would, in fact, say that this is walking the path of life the path of redemption and not of violence or coercion or manipulation. But what I find striking after this wonderful psalm is near the end of it, Solomon says, Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Lest somehow we think, oh, I can do this on my own. I've got this covered. I can, in fact, Demonstrate the power of God. It is God, in fact, who is at work. We who are the children of God should look to the giver of life, should look to the mighty God, and we should follow on the path of healing, forgiveness, restoration, and well-being. The question for us today is, do we? Here at the end, I would remind you of Paul's words to the Corinthians in his second letter to them. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. There again, very militaristic language. We a little bit uncomfortable with that. But he continues, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. I think if you look at the history of the church, far too often we have been using the weapons of the world. And in that, we would take more of a Isaiah view of the mighty God, this, this warrior king, 
and not that of Jesus, who is the fulfillment of that. One who in his teaching was counterintuitive in his actions, uh, counterpower, if you wish, against the empire. And we're supposed to be his followers. Uh, Erasmus on his, I don't know if it was his only visit, but I think his first visit to Rome as he saw the Pope going through in a procession said, I I don't know if this is a follower of Jesus Christ or of Julius Caesar. Um, I wonder if the same accusation could be made of the church today. Are we following the weapons of the world? Are we in fact following the mighty God? Let's pray together. Our Father, we imagine in our hearts sometimes that we know what is best. We know what works. We know what will get results, what will bring success. And if we're not careful when we look at the life of Jesus, we can't help but shake our heads and wonder, what was he thinking? Why didn't he have a better PR campaign? Why didn't he have more than 12 disciples? Why did he allow himself to be taken and put to death? Help us to see that he is the mighty God. And he is mighty in ways that are contrary to the thinking of the world. And sadly, oftentimes contrary to our thinking. As a wonderful counselor, Jesus saw things as they truly were and not as everyone said they were. And as the mighty God, he has true power, the power of life, the power over death. And we are his disciples. May we think these things through and be reminded of what we're called to be. Not using weapons of the world, but weapons of the Spirit. May your Spirit cause us to think these things through in the days to come. Change our thinking, change our actions. Thank you for bringing us together today. And the time that we're going to have now with food and fellowship, we ask your blessing on it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.